BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. The following is a rebroadcast of a show that we recorded back in 2015 on the curious case of Typhoid Mary. Unfortunately, uh, this show has only gotten more eerily relevant in the year 2020. This podcast is set in the early 20th century in a rightfully paranoid city, uh, which by this point in its history had suffered through endless epidemics. And New York had employed many different methods in preventing future outbreaks, some of those methods at the cost of the personal liberty and livelihood of its residents. Now, Typhoid Mary was a real person, but the term has come to mean a carrier of disease, somebody to be feared and shunned. In her story, we can also think about the personal responsibility that we all share to protect our fellow citizens. But what should we think about the personal liberties of Mary Mallon, the woman at the center of this story? This tale will pay visits to the kitchens and back rooms of the Gilded Age's finest mansions and to a small cottage on a forlorn little island in the East River. So wash up and join Tom and I as we explore the curious case of Typhoid Mary. So, Greg, our story begins in Oyster Bay, Long Island, and specifically in the residence of a Mrs. George Thompson, who owned a beautiful house uh, near the water. She rented this house out to a wealthy New York banker named General William Henry Warren. General Warren rented this house for his family to escape to, like, you know, like we've said before, to escape the city in the summer. Well, this is the Gold Coast. Hundreds were flocking to this area during this decade. They rented a house, in fact, for 11 people, which included the members of the family and also the household staff. Well, in August of that summer of 1906, six of the 11 people, so more than half of the people in the house, would come down sick with typhoid fever. Wow, so with typhoid fever. That typhoid is the, fever. So that is sort of the principal enemy of this particular show here. So it struck more than half of the house. Right, and Mrs. Thompson now, the, the woman who owns the house, found this incredibly odd, and it made her also very nervous because sure. she was, you know, renting out her property, and people were thinking that this was spread through through a dirty house, or there was something wrong with the... That it was permanently contaminated. Right. So who in the world is going to want to rent out, <laughs> you know, Mrs. Thompson's house on the shore? Mm-hmm. So she hires experts to come out and, and study the water and the plumbing and study the milk and the food supplies, look into anything and write up reports. But all of the evidence was inconclusive. 
So she wasn't about to let this thing go, right? She wanted her reputation restored, but she also just wanted to know how in the world half of the people in her home had become infected with typhoid. So that's a a setup for our mystery here. Before we dive further into the investigation, Tom, do you mm-hmm. mind if... Because I have my investigation voice on. <laughs> well, do you mind if I step back just a little bit here yes. and Situate. to d- d- interrupt the investigation to actually lay the groundwork okay. um, of the story of New York's experiences with these diseases? Because in a way, it's disease has actually been one of the most influential forces in the history of New York City, basically because with these big epidemics that would come through the wealthier classes of New York would then escape out of New York, either Mm -hmm. moving northward to these sparsely populated areas, Greenwich Village and many of these other places, or would move across the water to, say, Long Island. So epidemics would actually kind of like spur the growth of the city in this sort of macabre way. Uh Uh-huh. By sending people packing during what? During the hot season when the disease would spread. Yeah, yeah. Most of these diseases would come through during the summer for a variety of different reasons because a lot of them would come in through vessels, through shipping Mm -hmm. vessels. And of course, those seasons were in the spring and summer. A lot of it would also be spread through insects, vermin, rodents, that type of thing. All of which are running wild through the streets and through the homes, I'm sure, during the hot months. Yes, and it's just worse during the summer. Some of the biggest epidemics uh, in the mid-19th century were actually cholera Mm -hmm. epidemics. An incredibly frightening thing to imagine. Like, if you couldn't escape out of the city, but you had lived here Mm. and seen this horrible trauma happening, it would have been quite scary to, you know, approach another summer. We certainly wouldn't have looked forward to a New York summer as we do now. And we have a podcast on the history of Bellevue Hospital, because Bellevue and its precursors were the... Really, some of the only hospitals even willing to take patients uh, who were suffering from cholera. But if we're in the mid-19th century and we have these waves of immigrants arriving, especially in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, the city clearly had to do something, right, to fight disease. They were forced to, basically, by the citizens in 1866 to form our nation's very first public health department called, at least then, the Metropolitan Board of Health. It's formed because, of course, of all of the overcrowding and dangerous conditions in this city. The citizens' organization that actually pushed the city to forming this issued a very, like, damning, very shocking letter to to get them to organize. One of the quotes I read from it, We citizens of all classes have suffered from deadly diseases such as cholera, tuberculosis, smallpox, and pneumonia at the hands of public officials who scoff at our sufferings. We believe that housing... Politics, morals, and health are all intertwined, and without one, we would be quite at a loss. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, though, this Department of Health was tied into a lot of the Boss Tweed, Tammany Hall, corruption type things. Right. So, it wasn't exactly the most effective group, at least for the first couple decades of its existence. So you've rattled off all of these other epidemics, but what about typhoid? Well, what about typhoid? So, yes. I, so I, I have a few factoids, a few things to sort of clarify with this, because I think we've all heard of typhoid fever, but may not, may not know a lot about it, right? Okay. So f- one thing to distinguish it from typhus, typhus and typhoid are two separate diseases. And sometimes they're called a typhus fever, typhoid fever, or sometimes just typhus and typhoid. The main difference, of course, is that typhus is spread through lice. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, if you're bitten by lice. I suppose mm-hmm. you could eat the lice, but, like, it's really, uh, it's spread through those little vermin. Okay. Typhoid, which is quite serious and one of the most pressing diseases in American history, I think the most shocking thing to learn about typhoid is it's basically still with us today. Today, over 5,000 Americans are afflicted with typhoid. Most of them are travelers, international travelers. 2.1 million people in the world get typhoid fever. I mean, those are shocking. It is treatable. It is treatable. There is a vaccine. It just doesn't always work. And of course, not everybody has it. And we'll get into the details of how typhoid is spread later in the story. But I did want to mention right here that the name of the bacteria Mm -hmm. that, that... typhoid actually is comprised of is salmonella typhi. So that may ring a bell if you've ever had food poisoning. It is, in fact, in the same genus 
of germ. Okay. So, it, you know, it kind of is a much more severe version of food poisoning. It's something that affects your whole body as opposed to just certain parts of the body. Are the symptoms similar to food poisoning where you get kind of a fever and feel yeah. sort of delirious and I mean, vomit? For most people, it's kind of exactly like food poisoning. Then it just progresses to worse stages for people. Of course, back back in the day, there were no antibiotics or really any understanding of bacteria um, and the time that we are telling this story. It was a very serious disease at the turn of the century. Some information I found on the CDC website, Tom, in 1905, quote, typhoid fever causes more deaths than any other of the epidemic diseases. Hmm. And it actually further stated that in 1900, that the United States was one of the most affected countries by this disease. Of course, it's quite different today. Typhoid usually hits third world countries. Well, in 1906, there were nearly three and a half thousand cases of typhoid in New York City, and of those, 639 people died. So thousands of people in New York had typhoid. There's one other thing I want to get across, and then I want us to get down into this mystery, finally, right? But one thing I just wanted to for us to remember here is that this is the turn of the century. There is actually very little indoor plumbing at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're wealthy, you have your water closet, right? But if you're still living in these poor neighborhoods, you have old antiquated ways of using the bathroom, right? Right. Privies in the back courtyard. Germs, bacteria were not understood. This is a contagion that anybody, any person could be a carrier of this particular disease like it just didn't single out like women with red hair or children or babies like anyone could be a carrier of this which makes it quite threatening indeed in fact someone that we're about to discuss in this show isn't necessarily a particularly unique person but enough generalities tom let's go back to the front porch of the mansion at oyster bay the cursed summer home And not the front porch. Let's go into the kitchen, Mrs. Thompson's kitchen, because a number of investigators at her request visited. They all wrote up reports, but they really couldn't find anything. Not satisfied with that, Mrs. Thompson, in order to rescue her reputation, called in somebody who had a profound understanding of sanitary conditions in the city, a man named George Soper. Mr. Soper? Well, that's kind of a clean name. (laughs) There's a joke. Hey, we have a joke. (laughs) Germ-free, but not joke-free. So who is George Soper? Well, he was a sanitation engineer for the city. In the words of editorial writers at the time, he studied sick cities, if you will. Sick cities. Where doctors studied sick patients. He was somebody who would come in. He worked for the city, but he studied the sewage and the street cleaning and the water systems in big cities throughout Europe. And then he brought back ideas to New York for use in the sanitation department. So he basically stuck thermometers in big cities and took their temperature. Yeah, that (laughs) conjures up very odd images. In 1903, he had been called up to Ithaca, New York, where there was a major outbreak of typhoid in which one out of every 100 inhabitants was suffering from the condition. And he took some very dramatic steps. In fact, he even burned down a house at one point. After the people left. I'm assuming yes, no, every, okay, he okay. got their permission, <laughs> made sure everybody was out, and then burned it down, thinking that that could help control huh. it. He was experimenting with different methods, but he was credited for getting the Ithaca outbreak of 1903 under control and became, you know, he developed this reputation as being an epidemic fighter. So Mrs. Thompson gets him out to her cottage to this curious case. She puts him on the curious case and he accepts. So he starts his investigation by checking out the reports of the previous engineers who had been out there. There was one claim that perhaps that the outbreak had been caused by an old lady who was uh, sort of living on the beach who had brought up some shellfish to the family. I mean, again, it's like just sort of taking stabs in the dark here, right? right? Well, there were things that any Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple <laughs> would, would first set upon, which is what did all of these people have in common? 
if the six out of the 11 people who mm-hmm. caught typhoid, if all six of them caught it within just a couple days of each other, what happened just before this occurred? So he checked through the guest list of everybody who had visited and checked okay. up on them to see if, if any of them were carrying did it. Did something unusual. Right. Any of them were sick. And one curious detail did emerge, not about a guest to the cottage that summer, but to somebody working at the cottage. Just before the outbreak occurred, the former cook had left and a replacement was hired. But who was this mysterious maid? Well, her name was Mary, and she was mysterious because she was no longer there. Six months had passed since the outbreak by the time that Soper got on the scene, and Mary was nowhere to be found. She had moved on to another job. Her name was Mary Mallon. She was described as a, quote, rotund yet athletic woman of about 40 in 1907. A good cook, blonde, five foot six inches tall. So she is described as having had a rather masculine way about her, a a man's walk. She was paid by the family $45 a month and came through an agency because at this time, when you hired your domestic help, you worked with an agency. Most families, big families in New York, worked with two different agencies, Mrs. Stricker's on 28th Street, or the other was Mrs. Seeley's. Well, hmm, so these are the two t- like temp servant agencies that were right. used in this particular circle of society. Right. Perhaps they deserve a show on their own. <laughs> yes. History of temp agencies. Mary had been born in 1869 in Ireland in a town called Cookstown in County Tyrone. In Cookstown? In Cooks, Cookstown. She never had a chance. She, no, she, was, she was always all... destined to be a cook. Okay. In 1883, when she was 15 years old, she immigrated to the U.S. where she lived with her aunt and uncle uh, while finding work as a cook. And here we are 24 years later, and Soper's trying to trace her down. So when exactly had she been hired by the well, family here? Well, she had reported to work uh, on Long Island on August 4th, right? So remember, she was working for this family for the summer mm-hmm. and replacing a, a previous cook who had taken off. So she gets there on August 4th. The first case of typhoid occurred three weeks later on August 27th. And the last case was just seven days later on September 3rd. So within about a week, all of these people had come down with typhoid fever, all of them getting sick while Mary was there on the clock. Very or clearly so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, so I have a question. If she's a cook, right, right and this is something that's spread through a germ, right, right wouldn't cooking everything... Have, wouldn't it have all just been boiled away? I mean, like, would, wouldn't that have killed everything? Well, that's certainly what the medical experts thought at the time, that the typhoid couldn't be passed through cooked food because it, the high temperatures would kill off the bacteria. So, so shouldn't that have gotten Mary off the hook? However, when he looked through the records of this small period of time, there was just this one meal that all of these people attended together— This one Sunday, Mary made a dessert that was a family favorite. It was a special dessert, ice cream with bits of frozen peaches that were mixed into it. Little bits of peaches mixed up in the ice cream, sort of old-fashioned handmade ice cream. Sounds delicious. Something you might find in Bushwick today. That's right. Hopefully a cleaner version (laughs) of it. Because in this case... What almost certainly happened was that Mary passed microbes from her hands right into the ice cream, and it was thrown off into the ice box where the microbes were kept alive. They were frozen, basically. They weren't killed off. So through the production of food, through the preparation of food that was not cooked, in fact, it was the best possible thing for passing these germs because it kept them alive. Right. Mm-hmm. It froze them, and then they were com- then they were ingested. So we have a very clear suspect here by right. that time. Right, Mary Mallon. So how do they finally track her down here? He went straight to her agency and asked for the records of her previous employment through them. Now, this is not the complete list because much like working with temp agencies in New York or other places today. Mary worked with a variety of agencies, right? She was freelancing almost. Right, wherever she could get a job. So 
he wasn't able to reconstruct a complete history of her employment, but they did hand over seven previous employers' names and addresses. And what did they find? All the way back in September of 1900, Mary had worked for a house in Mamaroneck, New York, where she was also working for a New York family who were summering off in Mamaroneck, and a man had visited while Mary was at work in the kitchen, and he caught typhoid. Everybody thought at the time that it must have been caused uh, prior to the man's arrival at the house because he had been near the Montauk uh, Naval Army Base out in East Hampton. So that was the first case. Later that year, from 1900 to 1901, she spent almost a year with another New York family in which the laundress was hospitalized with typhoid, but it was never investigated. Now, the next year, in 1902, she took a summer job in Maine with a New York well-to-do lawyer named Coleman Drayton. Although I do enjoy a little holiday up in Maine. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, with Mary Mallon as my cook if that would be so enjoyable. Right. Uh, She's with the Drayton family in 1902, and on June 17th, just two weeks after she got there, the family had their first case of typhoid, then a second, then a third, and within a couple of days, seven of the nine members of the household had caught typhoid. The only two people who hadn't caught it in the family were the father, the lawyer, because he had already had typhoid before and he was immune to it, and Mary. And so everybody's sick in this house, and they had to go out and get extra help, and people came in to help them, and they got sick with it as well. So Mary and the father tended to all of these sick people off in the house, and he was so impressed by her sacrifice and her work that he gave her a $50 bonus. Oh, wow. Even though, as we know now, she was the one that brought this into their home. And then was racing from room to room, tending to people and spreading it. (laughs) And that's often what was happening in these cases. This is not terribly unusual. Whole households would get it. So that was three households that she had been in, and there was evidence of this, of this disease there. Right. And then two years later, in 1904, there was another Long Island house, Mr. Henry Gilsey's house, where there were 11 people, and all of the household staff came down with typhoid. As soon as Mary got there, you get the picture. Yeah. And then Oyster Bay happened, this story. So we've backtracked, and we've traced her steps, but where right. is she now in the city? Because she's in New York City, right? Well, just after Oyster Bay, she goes to Tuxedo Park, just north of the city, where she works in another family's kitchen, and the laundress gets sick. And then now, at this moment, when Soper's running around trying to retrace her steps, she's working for another family on Park Avenue and 60th Street. And Soper recognizes that there there are more people who are sick there as well. The laundress there is sick. Wait, so another laundress. I guess this is because they probably shared like living quarters. I can only imagine. Yeah, tight right? quarters. Right. And more tragically, the daughter of the family was actually dying of it. This was actually happening as Soper finds Mary in this house on Park Avenue. He confronts her in the kitchen where she's working and asks her for... Samples of her urine, feces, and blood. Yeah, that is not going to go over well. <laughs> no, you can't just uh, run in and ask for those things and get them willingly. And in fact, she, she responded by chasing after him with a carving fork. So she was clearly in no mood to cooperate with him in his little investigation. But I also must think that maybe she had, you know, if she's had all of these things in her background, that she must have, by this point, noticed something about this disease, don't you think? Well, perhaps, but she was also quite vocal in her objection to his investigation mm-hmm. in the first place because she wasn't sick. Remember, there was she's no... She's not sick, right. Yeah, she, she showed no signs of it. She didn't have typhoid. She cared for people who had typhoid, and in her defense, people all over the city, thousands of people were sick with typhoid. So maybe it was just a crazy coincidence, uh, and she didn't need some investigator pulling her into some hospital to give all kinds of samples. It was just not something... She didn't want this to sully her reputation as a cook. She would never get hired. But at the same time, you know, Soper, as an epidemic expert and as a health official knew that he was clearly onto something, that this was more than coincidence because it seemed like everywhere she went, people got sick with this. Mm-hmm. So he, as a health official, felt compelled to stay on this case and to bring her in and get to the bottom of this because he really feared, for more than just his reputation, he feared that there would be another huge outbreak or epidemic caused by somebody like Mary. 
Was she living in this house? The house where the the laundress and the daughter were currently sick? No, she wasn't living there, as opposed to some of the other places, like the summer houses, where obviously she was living. In the case of the Park Avenue place, she was she was just working there during the day, but at night she would go home to kind of a dingy rooming house on 3rd Avenue between 32nd and 33rd Street. She shared a kind of dirty room there with a rather disreputable boyfriend, it seems, who spent most of his time at the saloon on the corner and a dog who she was quite fond of. Well, Soper traced her to this spot and after sort of befriending her boyfriend Mm -hmm. companion at the corner saloon and getting access to the building, he waited for her one night at the top of the stairs. She came home, she got to the top and saw him sitting there and became incredibly angry, of course. Although he tried to calm her down, he had prepared a bunch of speeches about how this was in her best interest to just cooperate and come with him. And she became incredibly violent and once again, chased him out. Soper later wrote, quote, learning that Mary was going to leave her Park Avenue situation and knowing that if she did so, it would be hard to find her again. I brought her case to the attention of Commissioner Thomas Darlington and Dr. Herman Biggs, medical officer of New York City Health Department, and recommended that Mary Mallon be taken into custody. I called Mary a living culture tube and chronic typhoid germ producer. A living culture tube? Paints a kind of bleak picture. Quote, I said that she was a proved menace to the community. It was impossible to deal with her in a reasonable and peaceful way. And if the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force and plenty of it. So I assume that's the way they brought her in then. Well, again, everything with Mary is, you know, easier said than done because he would return to that Park Avenue house, this time with a female doctor, Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, to try to speak, you know, more reasonably with her. Mm -hmm. Of course, that didn't work. Mary slammed the door in her face. The next day, Dr. Baker returned with two police officers on March 20th, 1907, and they knocked on the door. Mary opened up the door... And she slammed it, ran back into the kitchen. The police busted into the house. There was a huge chase. The officers scurried through the kitchen looking for her. They searched in the basement. They looked at all the closets. And then they looked out the window and they saw the snow that had fallen in the backyard. They saw footprints going through the backyard onto a chair that had been propped up on a fence in the backyard. They found a kind of shed in the backyard with a bunch of cans stacked up against it and a little ripped piece of fabric caught in the lock they pulled away all of the cans and they flung open the door and there she was still ready for a fight according to dr baker quote she fought and struggled and cursed i tried to explain to her that i only wanted the specimens and then she could go back home she again refused and i told the policeman to pick her up and put her in the ambulance this we did and the ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one (laughs) we have mary in custody in the hospital for now. Right, in the Willard Parker Hospital. And she is fighting this, maybe certainly doesn't understand what's going on. But they get their samples, and once they examine everything, they find, unsurprisingly, that it is crawling with typhoid. Well, the I mean, the only thing they can really do at this point is to keep her away from people if she until they better understand what's happening with her, right? Right. But they tried to reason with her. Soper visited her in the hospital and said, please just cooperate with us. He even said that he just wanted to write a book about the condition to present to other scientists, and he would keep her anonymous, and that and that he could help cure her of her status as a carrier by offering to have her gallbladder removed, which to him maybe sounded like a reasonable suggestion <laughs> but to her a woman who's just been imprisoned and we don't have you know surgeries aren't just done like every day back no. then again in her mind she's not sick why would she have to have her gallbladder removed so the authorities deemed her a menace to public health and decided that they needed to transfer her to a more remote more isolated spot where she wouldn't be such a threat to public health And we'll visit this isolated area and continue the tale of old Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary, after the commercial break. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today north brother island you know whenever you hear the words north brother island that things are about to take a rather morbid turn i don't know things have already been kind of morbid <laughs> in this story greg well are, are they going to get more morbid well this morbid is, this is just a a destination that has often been unpleasant now it's a little island it and its its smaller brother, South Brother Island. It's off the coast of Port Morris neighborhood in the Bronx, way up where the East River um, opens into the Long Island Sound. It's kind of by Rikers Island. Okay. That was completely uninhabited until the 1880s when Riverside Hospital, because of all of these various epidemics, they needed a place to put people. So this is an island built just to quarantine people who yeah. who were sick with what exactly? It's a yeah quarantine island. Um, it had various different structures, p- pavilions as they called them, for patients who had smallpox, typhus, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and of course typhoid. Now, and, it, and who would even work at these places? It seems right. like that would be the least desirable job because you'd just be at a constant risk of becoming infected yourself. Yeah, just a very, very dangerous place to work for the physicians and nurses there. You know, dreadful, of course, if you were sent there for quarantine because you would be in close contact with these other diseases on top of the one that you had yourself. Now, a very horrible thing happened here in 1904 with the explosion of the General Slocum steamship. And many of the victims of that disaster and the survivors actually washed up on the shore here at North 
brother and were cared for and were tended to by not only the nurses and doctors, but even the patients. So the Slocum disaster was in 1904, three years before Mary is sent to the hospital here. Right. And she was admitted on March 20th, 1907, under orders by the New York Health Department. She was obstinate, as you had previously said, quote, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion, unquote? Um, That, of course, was another dog because she was confined to a small cottage on North Brother Island. So she wasn't quarantined in one of these pavilions for patients who were sick with typhoid. No, I mean, at least not on a regular basis. She basically lived out in this little cottage. This was, of course, a very humiliating experience for her. As you can imagine, these doctors constantly taking stool samples, sending them to labs. Meanwhile, of course, Mary did have some legal representation by this time. And then they had their own doctors who would send off her samples here and then those of course would conveniently test negative <laughs> so right. so she was getting sort of conflicting information you know she was t- being treated like a lab rat essentially they weren't bringing her in onto a lot of the knowledge and to be fair she probably wasn't listening to a lot of the things that she was being told In the meantime, of course, this is now arousing the interests of the newspapers. By 1908 was the very first time she was referred to as Typhoid Mary in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I mean, today, just think of the words Typhoid Mary. Mm. It's almost slang for just a carrier, healthy carriers, right? right? Somebody who's unknowingly, perhaps, carrying and transmitting some sort of sickness. Now, she, of course, disliked this nickname. Why would you want to be called this? She got a little sassy. Uh, She said, quote, I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns have come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The doctor in the case, a man named Dr. William Parks, has even had me illustrated in Chicago like they had drawn her. I wonder if he, the said Dr. William Park, would like to be insulted and put in the journal and him called Typhoid William Park, Mm. unquote. In June of 1909, she went to court. She and her representatives uh, filed a writ of habeas corpus and asked for her to be released because, you know, she wasn't being held for a crime. Right. You know, um, it's, and she had never really been represented in a court or sentenced to this quarantine. She had just been dragged out of her job and sent off to this island. There's a really big set of facts that are actually supporting her in this case, and that is the fact that there are actually dozens of people in New York State, well, dozens of people in America, but specific to this case, dozens in New York that were had also been identified as typhoid carriers, people who weren't sick, but were carriers just like Mary Mallon. So asymptomatic. Yes, but they weren't being strictly quarantined. Like they might be quarantined in their home or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they lived in different places where there were maybe a few different options that could be explored with these people. So she was using those as examples of like, why are you treating me differently? Well, it does seem like there's another possibility, right? Where she just keeps it under control, but doesn't right. need to be off, you know, shipped off to some island. Well, unfortunately, this in this case, in 1909, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court rejected her request. So she was sent back to North Brother Island. But the newspapers continued to be interested in this story, and she continued to get interviewed to infuse a bit of humor into this, if we Please. could. Let me read an excerpt from an article from the New York Tribune, July 21st, 1909. Headline, Chance to Lose Typhoid Mary, subhead. Michigan farmer offers germ-laden one his heart and hand. Quote, germ-laden one? Germ, the germ-laden one. <laughs> Is that worse than Typhoid Mary as a nickname? All the trouble which the health department has had through the detention of Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon, on North Brother Island would be at an end if Dr. Darlington, the health commissioner, could accept the offer of a Michigan farmer to relieve the Board of Health of her further care. 
the farmer read the Lansing, Michigan State Republican of Mary's detention and writes the local health board his entire history and pedigree and his desire to wed her. He says he has been in an insane asylum, has had much sickness, and was never wealthy, but otherwise is all right. Oh, he sounds like a catch. <laughs> yeah, he owns his own farm and is 28 years old. So, huh. so wasn't uh, expecting that he was 28 years old, yeah, but 20. wait, I don't understand. So he proposed through the newspaper through, did he, uh, yeah, or yeah. did he write to her? Well, no, he wrote to his local board of health. Well, I mean, it, it's he's clearly, still in the asylum. Like he's in a, an asylum currently. So, well, I mean, not in, I mean, <laughs> I mean, at the, t- at <laughs> the time of the story, is he, is he in an asylum? No, uh, yes, he is. In in uh, nineteen oh nine, he he is. Okay, this is all anyway. Well, let's be just, unfortunate. They weren't allowed to get married. Let me escape to the last paragraph of the story. Quote, from the wide notoriety the germ-laden patient has received, the physicians expect to get next an offer from some enterprising manager to place her in vaudeville behind a germ-proof screen, unquote. That didn't happen either, thank goodness. But fortunately for Ms. Mallon, she doesn't have very much more time here on North Brother Island. For in February of 1910, with the brand new mayor that comes into the city, William J. Gaynor, he appoints a new health commissioner named Dr. Ernst Litterl. And either he's just kind of like fed up with it of reading all the newspaper reports about it, or he does think that she's actually been treated unfairly. So immediately he releases her claiming, quote, she has been shut up long enough to learn the precautions that she ought to take. The chief points that she must observe are personal cleanliness and the keeping away from the preparation of other person's food. So sure enough, just a little over a week later, February 19th, 1910, she is freed from North Brother Island. Hold on, though. She isn't completely freed. He doesn't just let her go. She has to agree to a certain number of things, right? right? There are some conditions attached. She has to keep clean. Right. She can't work as a cook. No. But there's also another condition that she has to stop by every three months for a checkup, and they can give her a full examination if they want to and make sure that she's keeping everything in control. So it's almost like she's under a house arrest of sorts. Right. She has to just keep checking in with the health department. So I don't think he was just sick of the story or reading about the story. I think that he really thought that they could contain this. You know, like you were saying before, there were other people there were others, it's true. who were being able to contain it. They weren't in the largest city in the country. You know, so there is this case of Mary working around a lot of other people and the ease with which it can be passed. Well, they ended up, they just decided that they were going to trust her now. Right. And as long as she's not cooking food, that's fine. And they had explained this to her. You know, Dr. Soper had gone out of his way to explain to her, look, Mary, the way that you're passing this is unfortunately pretty clear. And I'm about to get graphic. Okay. okay? okay. But he said to her, you're going to the bathroom. And then you're not washing your hand and something is getting on your hands. Then you're going into the kitchen and you're preparing food. And when you prepare food that is then not cooked, so perhaps a salad, perhaps a favorite ice cream and peaches dish, something that's not cooked, the germs are not cooked away and the germs are passed through the food and the sickness is spread. It's pretty clear what's going on here. And it was also pretty clear from his visit to her home on 32nd Street and the way she kept herself that she wasn't terribly clean. And she even herself said that she didn't feel the need to wash her hands after going to the bathroom, even though she was preparing food. And I just need to interject that even though she probably did, these were in fact her habits, that the sort of standards of cleanliness that we have today mm-hmm. are, of course, so far advanced. So what well, she was right. doing, many people were sort of living It like wasn't this, terribly right? unusual. Right. It right. wasn't unusual. They didn't have a sign that said all employees must <laughs> wash hands before going back to work. We have those signs because of people like Typhoid Mary. That Mary Mallon. So she's back on the streets. So what happens? No more food, right? She tries to abide by, you know, these directions. She tries to work in a laundry. She takes some jobs ironing uh, and realizes that that doesn't pay nearly as well as cooking. And she again thinks that she's being treated unfairly. So she decides to go back into the business of cooking 
knows that she can't do it as Mary Mallon. Everybody knows Mary Mallon is Typhoid Mary. Right. So naturally, she changed her name. She she invented a couple new names for herself. She went by Marie Breshoff and Mary Brown. But she's getting rehired into these homes. Right. Taking, taking gigs all over the place. Unfortunately, you know, she was afraid of working for the big agencies again. So she, she takes jobs wherever she can. She cooks in hotels and hospitals and restaurants. She cooks out in New Jersey at a big fancy hotel uh, and a restaurant on Broadway. Everywhere she cooks, people come down with typhoid. And she does this for five years, from 1910 until 1915. But how could she be getting away with this for five years? I mean, there's she's supposed to be checking in, but obviously right, people are looking at her. And obviously she's an infamous figure. I guess the Department of Health didn't have the resources that they needed to really go after her. And Soper himself, George Soper, he was sort of following along. But once he turned in his report way back in 1907 mm-hmm. that got her shipped off to North Brother Island in the first place, he was officially no longer on the, on the he case. He moved on. He went on to do big, important things. But he, and he was, of course, following the story. And he probably knew that she was no longer checking in. And he was probably very bothered by this. But nobody by the name of Mary Mallon was checking in anymore. And there were thousands of cases of typhoid a year. So, you know, how, what were they supposed right. to do? It was very difficult. It's a little harder to argue now that what she's doing is not criminal, you know, because she now is sort of she wields this information about herself. And yet she's still doing these things. Yeah, this in, in this part of the story, it's, it seems harder to defend her actions. Yeah. Well, in 1915, Soper did receive a phone call. Even though he wasn't on the case anymore, he he got a call from the head obstetrician at the Sloan Hospital for Women up on 59th Street. They had a situation that they were dealing with. 25 people in the hospital had come down with typhoid. Soper, of course, was interested and went right up to the hospital. She wasn't there at the time, but he is given samples of her handwriting from the office, and he immediately identifies the writing as that of Mary's. He also identifies the physical description of her and even the way that she walks with that kind of masculine gait. I was wondering early in the story why it was so important to describe her that way, but it's because they're Mm -hmm. following this very unique person through the city. Right. I wouldn't just throw out that she had a masculine (laughs) walk to her. It was coming back to this moment, Greg. Aren't you glad you stuck around for it? Now now I have no questions anymore. But she wasn't there. No, she headed out to Corona, Queens to visit a friend. She took a train, got off the train and headed for her friend's house with a veil over her face as if to not arise any (laughs) sort of suspicion. Or to perhaps block the infamous Corona ash dumps that were right there. In fact, Corona was best known for that, so perhaps she was blocking the ash as she was escaping notice with a veil. So many reasons to wear a veil in Corona. (laughs) Nice Gatsby reference, by the way. So the police follow her to this home, knock on the door, and no surprise, nobody would come to the door. So... Once again, as is the case with Mary, they had a struggle on their hands, and they ended up gaining access to the house using a ladder hoisted up to the second floor where the police officers went in. She put up a struggle, finally gave up, and was returned back out to North Brother Island. So she is once again on North Brother Island. Right, and for so many reasons this time. You know, she has broken the conditions of her release. She has infected more people. She has run from the authority. She got people sick at the the women's hospital. I mean, there was really no excuse anymore, and she knew it, so she basically gave up. And she went back into quarantine on March 27th, 1915, and she would remain there until she died 23 years later in 1938. So she spent the rest of her life on North Brother Island. She did. And just uh, never cured of this, of the typhoid carrier illness that she had. No, because she refused to have her gallbladder removed. And at that point, they knew that they could do an operation and remove that gallbladder and release her, but she wouldn't do it. So she stayed on the island in her small cottage. She could cook and tend to the cottage, cook for one, that is, 
and spent her days reading and tending to her garden. She was taken care of, and she knew other people there, and people were friendly with her. And, you know, once they understood the rules, that you didn't talk to Mary about her previous life or those episodes that were so well-known. You just sort of stuck to the nice things, and then she could be very pleasant to live with. And she even was given a job. She worked in the hospital lab, cleaning bottles, And after regaining trust, she was actually able to head back into the city for small joints. She could go back just to visit her old neighborhood and then come back out to sleep. She visited her family in Queens. And then on December 25th of 1932, a delivery man visited her cottage on Christmas morning to bring her a package and found her on the floor. She had just suffered a stroke. She lost her ability to walk, and so she'd remain in the hospital on North Brother Island for the next six years. And on November 11th of 1938, she died of pneumonia. They held a funeral in the large Catholic Church of St. Luke's on 138th Street in the Bronx. So she finally got to permanently leave North Brother Island. And at her funeral, only nine people attended. seemed that people were frightened of her and even staying away from her in death. Hmm. And she's buried in St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. And here we are at the end of her story. And it is a tragic story, right? There's there's many elements to this because her name and then, of course, that nickname has been stigmatized. And, and you know, she has this terrible reputation. And investigators found 53 cases of typhoid that could be traced directly to Mary, including three deaths, which we've discussed here. But they assumed that probably there were many times more cases and deaths well, because uh, that they, they don't know about. Yeah, they may have given other people, like, you know, it just emanated out. And, so. and there were so many other jobs, you know, that people don't know about. And she was cooking in hospitals and she was cooking in, in restaurants. It's easier to trace them when it's just in a family. Well, that sounds dangerous, but how is that tragic? Well, I just find something tragic about the fact that she was framed publicly as the world's most famous, dangerous captive. But yet she thought of herself as innocent, or at least she portrayed herself that way. And so there is something tragic about somebody who thinks that they're innocent, locked up for much of her life in isolation. And thus ends the tale of Typhoid Mary. Check out our blog for a few interesting pictures. This one won't have as many, but there's certainly many pictures of Miss Mary Mallon herself out there, including some newspaper clippings that are quite startling. Because newspapers were selling copies with this story. And in fact, I think it was the New York Journal American has a famous illustration of her cooking with typhoid, throwing typhoid like it's... Yeah, like skeletons. Yeah. Throwing typhoid as if it's salt into mm-hmm. a skillet. I'll have that illustration on the blog and many other photographs of North Brother Island. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.